Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I think the job of leadership is to imagine possibilities. And by that, I mean to see opportunities and to rally people around those potential opportunities, ultimately turning ideas into action. Now, I don't believe that the leader has to have all the ideas themselves, but they have to find those ideas, bring those ideas together and turn them something into real. So what if, as a leader, you had a methodology for looking into the future, for drawing implications, and for taking actions today that are going to make a difference? And that's what I want to talk about, a process called the future back process. And then we're going to take that methodology and apply it to a particularly pressing problem at the moment, which is the future of the office place. So my guest today is Bob Johansson. Bob is a sociologist focused on top leadership in shape-shifting organizations. Um, He is an advisor, a design futurist dedicated to better futures, and has worked with a number of people, including Joseph Press and Christine Bullen. Um, And they have pioneered this method um, called The Future Back. They work at the Institute for the Future, and the book that we're talking about is Office Shock, Creating Better Futures for Working and Living. And you can learn more about their work at http colon slash slash officeshock.org. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wanda. Great to be with you. It's great to be with you. I think um, it's so rare that we get an opportunity to really examine how we think about the future. But I said future thinking was really important. I want to turn it to you. Why does future thinking matter to you? Why do you care about this? Yeah, I I think the reason I care so much about it is the present is so overwhelming and so noisy um, that we have to go out to the future and think future back in order to get any sense, any sense of orientation, any sense of grounding about not only where we are, but also where we want to be. So thinking future back, you know, I'm often asked, I'm based in Silicon Valley, I'm often asked, how can you do 10-year forecasting? I can't even do one or two. And the reason is because it's easier. It's actually easier to look 10 years ahead and think future back than it is to get caught in this noisy now. So the reason I think Future Back is to kind of get out of that noisy now and get a fresh, clear view of not only where we are, but where we want to go. Right. So that's counterintuitive, Bob, that it's easier (laughs) to think 10 years out than one year out. Why do you think that's so? Um, You're right. It is counterintuitive, Wanda. Um, Take an example, a current example from Silicon Valley. Uh, If you look 10 years ahead, it's obvious we're going to have sensors everywhere. They're going to be very cheap. Many of them are going to be interconnected. And some of them, some of them will be in our bodies. You know, that's just obvious. If you look 10 years ahead, it's not at all obvious in the present. Now we've got you know, the Fitbit and the Apple Watch and lots of other kind of sensory devices collecting data. And we also have what one of my colleagues, Rachel McGuire, calls the health data gold rush, where you've got 
companies of all kinds kind of rushing to figure out how to process all this health data and help us make healthier choices without being confused. So that's just one example of many where if you look 10 years ahead, you can get clarity of direction even in a highly uncertain time. And once you have that clarity of direction, such as ubiquitous sensors, then you can say, okay, given the fact that that's where we're going, um, how do we get from here to there? So I think if I get this correct, the idea is that it's too noisy to know exactly what will happen next year. But we know out in the future, some distance ahead, 10, maybe 15 years even, where we'll end up. And then mm. we can think backwards from that. But right in the moment, there, you know, is it next year? Is it three years from now before we have a different kind of device implanted? <laughs> yeah, you're 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 right. You're right. Um, and I'm I'm not saying you ignore the now. Um, there's there's no way we can ignore the now. That's where we live, and that's where we make decisions. I'm just saying the future back gives you a more clear sense of where you're going directionally. So you can't really be certain about where you're going. I'm not saying you can predict the future. We we don't even use the word predicted institute for the future. You know, what we do is what we call forecasts, which are plausible, internally consistent, provocative stories from the future designed to provoke insight and action. So we do a base forecast and we do it annually, actually, and we've been doing it for almost 50 years now. So we're the longest running futures think tank in the world. But the question is not really, can you predict? Because nobody can do that. We do keep track just for orientation. And out of those 50 years, 60 to 80% of our forecasted futures have actually happened. So we're usually right, but that's not the purpose. The purpose isn't to predict, it's to provoke. So I hope, for example, that some of our forecasts right now around climate, I hope we're wrong. You know, I hope we're, we're smart enough to avoid those particular futures. And in that case, it'll be a success if we're wrong. Right. I get that. Well, so my belief is the reason for thinking out in the future is because it helps you get prepared. It helps you see the choices that you need to make, the strategic options right. that you made to make, and the implications of that. And right. I think too many leaders live with the tyranny of the quarter, <laughs> as opposed to let alone the year or the two years out, and they're not anticipating what's coming in their industry. You see the same? Yeah, it's a real. It's I do, and it's a real challenge. This quarterly pressure. I've, I work a lot with senior executives, including some CEOs of really big companies, and the best of them are looking for ways to hedge that quarterly pressure. So, for example, creating reward incentives that aren't just focused on the quarter, but the year or the multiple year uh, cycle and have compensation linked to longer term goals as well. So there are ways to do that, but it's definitely a dilemma. It's a pressure. You have to be promoting and uh, and and performing well in the short term. But that long-term view gives you more your directional clarity. And um, that's where, you know, we have to be to to kind of settle in on that clarity of direction, but still stay flexible in the in the present and and even high performing in the present it's a it's a real challenge a real dilemma right i see with a number of my clients who will remain nameless shifts happening shifts coming in their industry 
The signals mm. are all out there. It's not a mystery. But the leaders within the organization, I'm not talking about the top of the house. I'm talking about the leaders running the businesses and the divisions within that organization are not thinking about the potential changes that would be coming. So mm. they're making decisions, building staff, creating strategic plans that assume things keep going, that they're not mm. knocked off their feet by a competitive move they see from the sidelines. We see this so many times, you know, yeah, some folks knew it was coming. There was some discussion about it, but we didn't get ahead of it. So mm. that's what I see when I think about developing leaders um, and helping them get ready to be the next generation at the top of the organization. There's just not enough outward looking. Okay. Mm. I want to do one more philosophical thing. Um, <laughs> you say it's a mistake to look from the present forward. And instead, you want to look from the future back. Why do you say that? Yeah. Um, so if you look from the future back as a beginning and you go from the future and then the next and then the now, you get a much more grounded, much more clear sense of where it is you want to go. If you do what most people do, which is to start in the in the now and then go out to the next, which is a few years out and then the future, which often they don't even get to. That's the model I think McKinsey developed at first, Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3. Many companies use that, and the now is the now. The next is, say, the next few years, and then and the future is maybe 10 if they get that far. Um, what we're saying is the Horizons model is great in stable times, but if you change the order and go from the future to the next to the now – it just changes your ability to see where you're going and decide where you want to go. And, and this is all very practical. I, we did a custom forecast for Westrock, the world's largest paper company, a few years back. And I was presenting it to the sales meeting for North America gathering in Florida of all the sales leaders for, again, a very traditional industry, a very traditional company. But they took this fresh look and when I arrived in the hotel, there were banners everywhere that said, future, next, now. This is a sales organization. <laughs> so, so obviously, they have pressures in the now. But that perspective, that future, next, now, it just changes the way you're thinking in a way that kind of unblocks you and lets you develop a clarity of direction. So applying it to sales, it means things like developing long-term relationships and selling is more important than transactions. Transactions are still really important, but in the context of a long-term commitment, it makes a big difference. Right, right. I can also imagine it helps you think about serving the customer in a better way. Yes. 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 Very much. I, I, I think that's that's thinking through the basics of your business. And in terms of long-term relationships, how how can your customer benefit? In the long run, you're going to benefit too. But it gives you a chance to think in a fresh way. Just another practical example that I can talk about, because they've talked about it publicly now, is we just did a custom forecast for Hills pet science, which is uh, a pet food, basically dogs and cats, a pet food company based in Topeka, Kansas, um, owned by Colgate, which is another interesting variation. 
but we worked with the CEO of Hills to do a custom forecast on the future of the connected pet. So in other words, thinking about 10 years out with this world of sensors everywhere, our pets, our dogs and our cats are going to be able to tell us much better what they need. And we're going to be able to make much better health decisions. Now, Hills has traditionally sold through veterinarians and veterinarians are changing in fundamental ways too. So if you think future back, the advice that we get about how to care for our pets, the advice is now coming from the internet. It's coming from other voices of authority. It doesn't always come from the vet. You know, the vet's still important and the relationship with the veterinarians is very important for Hills, but it's different. You know, now the sales path, the information path, the sources of authority just vary. So in that case, we did the custom forecast on the future of the connected pet and the role of digital in pet food. Now, that leads to a conversation about supply chain because that's, that's really, you know, their business did very well through COVID, um, but the issue for them was supply chain. Uh, and again, sensors play a big role in, in the nature of the supply chain. So what future back thinking does is help get you out of that noisy now and think differently about, in this case, the relationship between the, the human parent and the pet parent, as they call them, uh, and the, the cat or the dog. But it also gives you a different lens on the immediate, and in this case, the supply chain. Uh, and you know, the big story out of that was it's not just going to be a supply chain. If you think future back, it's going to be a supply web, and it's going to be increasingly an open web and the criteria for success is not going to be just efficiency. It's going to be resilience because this isn't the last pandemic. This isn't the last VUCA world event. Right, right, right. There will be many, many more. I think we're right about that one. Okay, Bob, I'm sold. So now let's talk about the process. <laughs> so you have this whole, I'm going to say methodology, but I guess process is maybe a better word for starting with the future and then doing the next and then doing the now. So where do we start and then what do we do? So describe this process for us. So the the process, and we talk about it in a lot more detail in the book, the process is to pick um, a distance out in the future. Uh, we, we like 10 years, as I said, usually that's the sweet spot, but I did a custom forecast a few years back on the future of food security for Syngenta, the big crop protection and um, plant seed company. Um, and we were focused on food security. It turned out, particularly in Western Europe, 10 years out wasn't enough to have a reasonable conversation because our, again, our forecasts are meant to be conversation starters, not predictions. We wanted a conversation about food security. So what we found was, particularly in Western Europe, there's a lot of very smart, very well-intentioned people who believe that GMO foods is a yes-no choice. Uh -huh. um, GMO foods is not a yes-no choice. It's food chemistry is like a spectrum of choices, some of which are good, some of which are bad. Um, and if you think future back, that's really obvious. But 10 years out wasn't enough. We were stuck in the polarized conversation. Right. Um, so we went 30 years out. Mm -hmm. If you go 30 years out and you ask the question of food security, of global hunger, you have to talk about food uh, security and 
through the lens of food chemistry. You just have to get into that conversation. So picking how far out to go is a really important thing. Five years is almost always not enough. Uh, 10 years is usually the sweet spot. Sometimes we go further. We just did a big custom forecast in Australia for the future of telco, digital telco. We went 20 years out in that case. So you just have to decide what's the right point out there. Once you do that, then we do what we call a base forecast, um, which involves identifying all the trends. Um, trends are patterns of change you can extrapolate from with confidence. Trends are really important. But for us, trends are the easy part. What we're focused on are disruptions, which are breaks in the pattern of change. So, for example, demography is a trend. And you should look at demography. You, at, you know, actuaries can actually predict in a macro way how populations will develop. The digital natives and what we call the cross-reality natives, they're disruptions. They're mm -hmm. breaks in the pattern of change. So we define digital natives as 27 or less in 2023. We define cross-reality or XR natives as 17 or less in 2023. They're disruptions. They're breaks in the pattern of change. So after we look at the trends, then we specifically say, what are the four or five external future forces, disruptions, most likely to disrupt your business or whatever we're focused on. It could be a company. It could be something like global food security. We just did one during COVID on the future of interactive entertainment for mm -hmm. a video gaming company. So you put something in the center and then we take what are the four or five big external factors you have to consider. And we've learned through years of doing this, we've learned that three is usually not enough in terms mm -hmm. of the number of disruptions. Six is too many and right. four is better than five. <laughs> so okay. we're always looking for the four or five big external future forces most likely to disrupt your business or whatever you put in the center. That's what we call our base forecast. Okay. Then we do scenarios off of that. Um, I One of my favorite clients ever was um, head of marketing at Procter & Gamble. And every time we did a custom forecast for him, he would always say, once we were done, now I want you to do a follow-up where exactly the opposite happens. That was very cool and very shrewd because that stretches your thinking about what's possible. Then the final thing we do is to develop a, we call it a leadership accelerator, a way of engaging. And we particularly like to work with rising star leaders here. And we use gaming as much as we can. So here's where um, I'm not a military guy by background, but I happen to have been at the Army War College, the um, place where the generals go to become generals. I happened to be there the week before 9-11, and I learned about what they call the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I also learned how they do wargaming, um, which is much better than we do in business. So we always take our base forecast, our scenarios, and then we game it. Uh, so we allow the leaders and the rising star leaders to experience the dynamics um, gamefully in a low-risk way, to learn in a low-risk way. And we do that through intensive labs. Um, we have at Institute for the Future, we have a 
foresight essentials program that basically teaches people how to do how to be futurists and then we have a design futures group and a scenario planning group so basically we're always teaching as well as doing and we draw from that and then we would customize it for a particular client so that's the essence of how we do it we you know we pick the future how far out go future back we do um, a base forecast that includes trends and disruptions small number of disruptions we then do scenarios off of it then we game it so people can engage engage with it and and basically prepare themselves to be to be future ready and it's a really interesting footnote, you know, even though I'm not a military guy and I kind of entered that world very skeptically, um, I've been drawn in and I now teach the new three-star generals on their first week in Washington and they read my books and we have conversations about foresight and strategy and leadership and and I've learned so much for, from them. So, you know, we, we've got a lot to learn and people like Stan McChrystal, I think, are great examples of of somebody who's gone from military leadership into business. I, I think Stan's done the best job of making that transition and his books are 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 quite complementary to mine. What he calls right. team of teams is very much what I call shape-shifting organizations. Okay. All right. That's good to know. I didn't ask that question. All right. So I get the notion of we've got a, d- a future sometime out, and that depends upon the question that's being asked and the problem that's being stated. I get that we're looking for the trends, what's out there. That's important to know. And I get that you want a defined number of major disruptions, external forces that can throw those trends off track, break the pattern right. of those trends. Yes. And a few... Not too many, not too few. Four seems to be the sweet spot. I get that. And then for those who don't know scenarios, you're just writing stories, in effect, right. of what it would look like if those forces came to disrupt the trends. Did I say that correctly? Yes, yes. And you're right. Scenarios are basically stories. So the neuroscience of this is our brains are wired for stories. If they don't hear stories, they make them up. So as leaders, we always have to be great storytellers. What scenarios do is to stretch a forecast and help you apply it in in different ways. But it is essentially storytelling. And we use a a kind of um, taxonomy of of scenarios uh, developed by Professor Jim Dater at University of Hawaii, one of the few PhD level futurist programs in the world. And what Jim did was develop a typology of kind of all the possible scenarios just in a Mm -hmm. generic way. Mm -hmm. So there's the growth scenario, the constraint scenario, the collapse scenario, and the transformation scenario. So you know, many people, when they think scenario planning, they think these kind of simple two by twos. Those are fine for like an afternoon of conversation. But what we're doing as professional futurists is try to do a more systematic coverage of a range of possible scenarios and then build that into a model we call foresight, insight, action. So the foresight is designed to provoke your insight. The way we get evaluated is does our foresight provoke your insight that leads to a better decision than the present. We're not evaluated in terms of does our forecasted future actually happen? That's the way you evaluate a fortune teller. You know, yeah. we're not we're not claiming to predict the future. We're just saying 
we're looking at those external future forces. We've done it for a long time. We're usually right. Uh, but it's up to you to listen and be provoked and draw your own insight. And it turns out foresight is a really good way to provoke insight, even if you don't agree with the forecast. So right. I, I really don't care if people agree with our forecasts. Uh, I only care if it provokes them. To think about it. I can can see if your scenarios are built on trends and the disruptions to those trends. So we could all agree these trends are kind of going along. That looks reasonable. And then the potential disruptions, whether they happen mm -hmm. or don't happen the way that right. you have written about them, kind of isn't the point. The point is recognizing that these are the potential disruptors we need to be aware of. And then what does that mean we do about it? So that's your insight and then into action. I can see. So the the accuracy of the forecast to me doesn't seem to be the important part. And I can see why you say that. All right. I want to go back to this notion of gaming for anybody who doesn't understand what that word means or who doesn't understand how militaries around the world do war gaming. Can you just say a little bit more about what this process is like and why that's such a good one? Sure. Um, so a game is a story that you get to be in. Mm -hmm. So it's still a story uh, mm -hmm. or like a scenario, but you get to actually be in it. A viable kind of good gaming experience is one that has emotionally laden attention. So it really keeps you focused and it's loaded with emotion. So it isn't necessarily video gaming, although today's video games, the interfaces on today's video games are roughly 10 times better than anything we have in offices. So that's why we argue in the Office Shock book that the kids are going to have a competitive advantage when they join the workforce because they're going to be much better at gaming it than, than we are. Um, and in these gaming experiences, what you're you're trying to do is to simulate the future that isn't here yet. Yeah. And then allow people to practice in low risk ways. So, for example, I got to visit uh, the Fort Irwin, the National Training Center for the U.S. Army, um, just nearby, near Las Vegas. Um, it's in the Mojave Desert. And it's... Um, I, I came to think of it as the world's largest video gaming parlor. It's mm -hmm. about the size of the state of Rhode Island. And it has real tanks and real helicopters and real afghan actors or whoever it is you're preparing for actors and they play games for two weeks 24 hours a day um, many people are killed without having to die without having to die that's very powerful learning um, so what you're being taught is to thrive in a world that's actually harder than real warfare. That's their calibration. Now it's a lot harder to do that in business. We it's it's not it's really hard to do something like they do at the National Training Lab um, in a business world. But you can you can do it through role play, through what my colleague Jane McGonigal calls real play, where you you have people you know playing simulations, but as themselves. It's possible to stretch and allow people to practice in low-risk ways. And right. that's what I mean by gaming. Well, we see this as methodologies that I use regular or simulations where, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. there's a computer that goes with it that you right. make a decision and then there's a consequence of that sure. decision and you get and win points and lose points and, you know, that's sure. part of the simulation. But you could do the same, I'm assuming, in your gaming, where we're talking about being in a future state with a potential disruptor, and you're now right. trying to make decisions, business decisions, 
investment, hiring, go, no go decisions and see how those interact in this potential future state. Yes, that's right. And you're right. It's, this is very common now pedagogy in most good business schools. Um, my only encouragement for those gamers in business schools, and I've done a lot of those, is to build in more VUCA world, you know, more high uncertainty where you have surprise events and then have to respond. Um, many of those more quantitative games that are played in business schools are are more linear, and there's less of these disruptive surprises right. than, than I would like given my future backtake. Given the world, yeah, uh, I know a few of those, and I know a few who've altered that as well. So, but the yeah. generals—I was just trying to get at the general sense of you're what right. this kind no, of gaming right. would look like. You're okay. right; it's really not new. You know, we've we've played games forever. <laughs> it's just we can do better games now. Hmm? And, yes, <laughs> more realistic games uh, with bigger consequences. Okay, I, I have to ask you one last question before we take a break. You also write about these things called the seven spectrums of choice. How is this all relevant? Why does this matter? Right. Um, So when we began this book, it was early in COVID, and we were approached by the CEO of USM, the large furniture manufacturer in Mm -hmm. Switzerland. They make modular furniture, very cool stuff. And what he asked us was how could, as we came out of COVID, how could we start a new conversation about the office, the future of the office. And the conversation, the way many people are seeing it right now is sort of, when do we go back to the office? And and we listened to that and said, yeah, that's a good question. But as we thought about it, we created seven spectrums of choice. And when do we go back to the office was number six out of seven. (laughs) So so the first one in order was purpose. You know, why do you want an office at all? And there are good reasons to have an office, to have in-person. In-person meetings are best for orientation, trust building, renewal, early stage creativity, and early stage culture building. It's just better to do that in person. And that's not going to change. That's the first question. Then you ask about outcome. And here we have a spectrum from shareholder value to stakeholder value. Then we ask about what we think is perhaps the most important outcome over the next decade, which is climate. And the spectrum there is from net zero to regenerative. Then we ask about belonging. How do you create a culture of belonging? Um, We then ask about augmentation uh, because over the next decade, again, thinking future back, we're all going to be cyborgs at some level. We're all going to be augmented. So the question is, how will we be augmented? And then finally, how do you put it all together? How do you create agility? So that's the essence of the book. And we can go back and talk about each of those spectrums of choice. We're we're not telling people what to do. We're helping them make smarter choices. Right. So again, I see the notion of the future back. I look out into the future. What is this likely to be like? What are the circumstances, conditions, trends, disruptors? Exactly. And then form backwards and say, what are the spec the choices now I need to be debating in order to be prepared for that future? And in the office, yes. there are seven, but I presume there are different numbers and different kinds of ones depending upon the scenarios that you're working out. Sure. Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, and what we're doing, you know, we're not experts in the present. So we're not claiming uh, to tell people what to do. That's what consultants do. You know, we're humble futurists. So we're really good at telling where things are going in terms of patterns of change. 
and then thinking future back. And what we want to do is use our foresight to provoke your insight to make better decisions and ultimately make better decisions in the present. And what we realized in the in the COVID shutdown and two years of research, what we realized is that this is not a narrow operational question and, and, and a short-term issue. We're moving into a period where we call it the inter-pandemic period now. We're, we're kind of between pandemics, although certainly COVID isn't over. And it's not going to be the last and probably not the worst. But there's also going to be other uncertainties. So what we're trying to do here is to use this not as the you know the great resignation or the great reset or the quiet quitting we're we're calling it the great opportunity and it's a great opportunity to rethink the basics of how where when and and even why we work okay Perfect. All right, Bob, this is a perfect place to take a break. So my guest today is Bob Johansson. As you've heard, Bob works at the Institute for the Future. The book that he's talking about right at the moment is called Office Shock. What we've done this point is to just talk about this whole idea of curating future back. So looking 10 years out, understanding the trends, the patterns that are already currently at play for that 10-year future, and then more importantly, looking at the four to five disruptors that are going to really break those trends and seeing how all of those would potentially impact your choices. So gaming that, understanding what it's like to live in that world, then backing into today and say, what does that mean, the choices we have to make today about our Mm -hmm. business? All right, Right. now we're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, I want to dig into this whole notion of the office space, so the purpose of the book, Office Shock, where we say a little bit more about these seven choices and how do we begin to think about this challenge in a completely different way. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Bob Johansson. Bob is a sociologist focused on top leadership in shape-shifting organizations. Um, Together with his two colleagues, Joseph Press and Christine Bullen, they're all working at the Institute for the Future. They have a brand new book called Office Shock, Creating Better Futures for Working and Living. Okay, Bob, you said earlier, and I've forgotten already, what are shape-shifting organizations? (laughs) <laughs> so shape-shifting organizations are those that have no center, they grow from the edges, hierarchies come and go, they can't be controlled, but they can be guided. So think of this, it's very similar to what Stan McChrystal, the famous general, calls team of teams. You know, Think of it as a team of teams, or imagine a fishnet lying on a dock, you pick up a node a temporary hierarchy forms. You put down that node, pick up another one, another temporary hierarchy forms. So there's shape shifting. Hierarchies don't go away. And digital media are essentially the cord that connects along with the relationships. But it is important that they grow from the edges. There's no obvious center. And the hierarchies are much more flexible and fluid than in traditional organization. So if if you imagine a current uh, organization chart, they're very rigid, (laughs) you know, kind of hierarchical structures. If you think future back, our org charts are going to be much more fluid. Um, And when we design org charts now, we do it in virtual reality. So you have fluid structures that can be rearranged with both full-time employees and gig workers and others. And the, the, the structure is still there, but it's much more fluid than traditional organizations. I'm glad I asked because I think that is perhaps the best description I've ever heard of (laughs) where organizations are kind of moving without knowing how to describe it. So Mm. I would say so much of work that's happening in my clients, at least, is project-driven work, which means it's like I have a node that we pull up from a big net and it becomes its own tent, if you will, with its own hierarchy around that project. And then that goes back down and another one pops back up again. Exactly. So, and, and yes, there is an overlaying hierarchy, but it's very thin one on that. So I'm glad I asked you. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about the office, or as you like to say, the office verse. What I'm interested in hearing are what are the trends that you think we should be paying attention to? And what are the disruptors you think we need to be paying attention to? Sure. Um, So just to start with definitions, uh, the office we define as the building uh, Mm -hmm. or the buildings, the physical location. We use the term officing, which is kind of turning the noun office into a verb, a gerund, um, and that's the way we work. Um, And then the office verse is how you put together that kind of archipelago of possibilities that includes in-person but also includes virtual um, and also includes augmented reality and virtual reality and AI and other resources we have now. So we're moving toward the office verse as being the kind of core structure 
where buildings and processes are kind of a piece of that. Now, depending on who I'm talking to, I may vary that term office verse. So uh, I mentioned Westrock earlier. If I'm talking to them, I talk about the factory verse because with with um, Westrock, the world's largest paper company, the factory is actually the center, not the office. Um, we work with Walmart a lot. When I'm talking with Doug McMillan there or with others at Walmart, uh, I call it the retail verse, you know, because you know, for them, the store is the center, the distribution center is second, and the office is third. <laughs> so we think of it that way. We work with um, also with Angela Williams at United Way Worldwide. When I'm talking to Angela or to United Way people, I call it the community verse, you know, because the, really the focus of United Way is the community and the offices are very small, they're very distributed, and it isn't so much the center of the world. So it isn't it isn't just the office that I'm interested in. I'm interested in kind of the re relationship between how, where, when, and why we work, uh, kind of how all that comes together. Okay, great. All right, so trends and disruptors. Sure. What do you so, see out there? Okay, so... Um, the, the trends, let's begin. There's going to be fewer offices. So, you know, when you look at corporate real estate, it's a real issue. Um, and every major city in the world now is seeing a decline in office space. Um, there's the question of how much of that is going to come back. And nobody knows the answer. But, you know, as me as a humble futurist 10 years out, I think there's going to be net net fewer office buildings okay. and a lot more effort to convert those to living spaces or in some other way. Um, there's other creative alternatives. So, there, But having said that, there will be offices. Those aren't going to go away. In-person meetings are still very important. The more digital we become, the more we're going to value in person. It just won't necessarily be in offices. And those offices that are less left are going to be much better designed for orientation, trust building, early stage creativity, culture building, where many of today's, or I should say yesterday's offices, the old fashioned offices, were not very good for that. They were, we've got a whole history chapter in the Office Shock book about the history of offices. And it's kind of a dismal history. I mean, yeah. you know, offices were originally designed to, kind of simulate factories um, and people were put in boxes and cubes and a bunch of stuff that wasn't much fun. Yeah. Um, so this is an opportunity to rethink that. And sure, we're going to have in person, but it should be a lot more designed for things like orientation and trust building. So okay. that's maybe the basic trend. Second trend, um, the connectivity is going to get dramatically better. Um, so, you know, we're using Zoom now. Um, video conferencing started in the late 1970s. It was very crude um, and it's it's evolved into being pretty good. So if you look at Zoom, Teams, um, you know, WebEx, uh, you know, they're pretty good now. And 10 years from now, they're going to be dramatically better. Um, so that's a kind of inevitable direction. So it's this transition from today's internet to tomorrow's, you know, we call it the office verse. Uh, when we were writing the book, uh, you know, the metaverse was a term we first used in the drafts. And then 
various companies, one in particular, have tried to trademark metaverse and take it over. They're not going to succeed, I don't think. But we decided to just avoid the term metaverse. But basically, we're talking about the next generation of the internet applied to how, when, and where we work. And and the trend here is it's going to get dramatically better, okay. dramatically richer in terms of how we, we play it out. Okay. The third Great. trend... Third trend is uh, neuroscience. Neuroscience is going to become practical over the next decade. So just before the shutdown, I did the keynote for the Neuroleadership Summit, and it was in New York. And I did the opening talk, and then I did a middle-of-the-way uh, talk with the commandant of the Armin War College. Uh, and the Neuroleadership Institute people assigned uh, Kevin Oxner, the neuroscientist from Columbia, to follow me everywhere and to interpret what I was saying from a neuroscience point of view. And I love what the group Neuroleadership Institute has done. They've made neuroscience practical. Mm -hmm. And people like Kevin do a great job of that. And they help us interpret. So, for example, when I said nobody can predict the future, um, you know, Kevin kind of jumped in and said, yeah, you're right, Bob, but our brains try to do it anyway. <laughs> Yeah. So we're now understanding that our brains try to predict the future to protect ourselves. And this is from our <laughs> long ago brains protecting ourselves from the lions and the tigers and the dangers out there. Um, so what we have to do is essentially teach our brains new tricks. And, and our brains are really very pliable. So modern neuroscience says our brains don't stop developing. They can continue to learn. And now we're getting very practical advice, uh, things like storytelling, which we talked about in the first segment. Uh, the neuroscience have proven now that our brains are wired for stories. Now, I learned that a long time ago in divinity school, but now <laughs> we've got data to back that up. Um, okay. So that's um, neuroscience, I think, is a, a very important uh, next piece of that. The final thing I'll say is a trend um, is a trend toward purpose-driven people and purpose-driven organizations. The um, latest research out of the Blue Zones Project suggested, and this happened during COVID, that purpose-driven people are happier, they're healthier, and they live up to seven years longer. Purpose-driven people who work at purpose-driven organizations are happier, healthier, uh, they live up to 14 years longer, and the companies perform better. So that's good news, I think, in a basic way, in that we start to understand the importance of purpose and meaning and work. And that's the, the basis of our seven spectrums of choice. It's a bad thing when, when your purposes are conflicting with each other. Uh, and and if, if you see in these polarized times now, you can see, for example, extreme religions that have purpose-driven people but they believe not only that they're right, but everybody else is wrong. <laughs> now, that's really dangerous. That's what I call the threshold of righteousness. So purpose and meaning is not without risk. But to me, that's overall a, a positive trend that we're understanding more clearly the importance of purpose, the importance of meaning and work. And in these kinds of more shape-shifting structures, there's more flexibility to actually create meaningful work environments. Right. All right. So four trends, one about having to do with the office space, physical space itself, the way it's going to be designed, what that space is going to be needed to do, where it's going to be really well suited to do things. And I like that you said 
is to build trust, it's to do orientation, culture building, and early stage innovation. I probably missed a couple, but I think I got the general gist there. You did. All right, that the connectivity is going to dramatically increase. It'll be more better dramatically, that we will understand more about neuroscience, particularly how to train our brains to operate better in this world, and that we're going to have an increasing interest in purpose-driven people operating inside purpose-driven organizations. Okay? Right. Good now, summary. what about the disruptors? So the disruptors are are basically summarized in the seven spectrums of choice, but I want to I want to play it out in in that in that structure. I've already talked about purpose and meaning. There'll be more of that. That'll be a disruption. The second spectrum is outcomes, and here we rely a lot on Mariana Muzicata, the European born in Italy, practicing now in England, um, economist who is the one who coined the term in economics of hope. And what she argues is that um, traditional purpose and and uh, kind of outcome goal of of private corporations has been shareholder value. And what she says is it should be a spectrum from shareholder value to stakeholder value. Or we define that as a spectrum from um, profit to um, prosperity. Um, and and again, it's a sliding scale. It's not a binary choice. It's a sliding scale. And in the book, we use a music metaphor, a music mixing board metaphor. So you kind of slide the scales for each. So a big disruption is the kind of narrow corporate structure we're living in right now is just not sustainable. So we're we're pushing the edge of this rich poor gap and the tensions that grow out of the rich poor gap so we're pushing the the limits of capitalism the way we've defined it traditionally and we have a whole project at the institute now called the equitable enterprise and in this chapter we write a lot about how can you design companies not just prepare people for jobs at existing companies but how can you design companies that are more equitable that are more inclusive, that do um, accept people from varied backgrounds and that have a more equitable pay structure and reward structure. I just think over the next decade, the disruption is going to be, we've got to figure out better ways of doing that. And it's it's already beginning in some ways with the things Business Roundtable is doing and right. kind of things, you know, Paul Pullman, the guy who used to run Unilever, um, he has a new kind of nonprofit that's kind of creating dialogues in this space. There's a lot of hopeful signs of things happening, but I think that's an important disruption space. Um, the, th- yeah. the third spectrum on climate um, it's you know we're we're not a an activist group you know we're not a social activist group we're not uh, advocating for any particular future we're humble futurists thinking future back but we started studying climate in 1977 1977 a long time ago um, and it's it's been obvious for some time with great scientific consensus that we're in trouble and yeah. the next decade it's going to hit the fan one way or another. Um, during COVID, I've been more impressed than I thought with companies. A lot of stuff has happened yeah. positively. I've been less impressed with governments. It's been really disappointing how little governments have done on this front. So to me, that's a very important disruptive space 
uh, the whole yeah. climate and 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 here the kids are keeping us honest and it's yeah. it's not just Greta Thunberg you know she's the poster child but there's thousands of Greta Thunbergs I would say even tens of thousands and they're all connected by social media <laughs> so they're not going to put up with this you know they're they're somewhere between impatient and angry um, and they're and they're not going to put up with it so to me that's a big area of disruption okay. Um, the spectrum around belonging, I think we have the potential to create much more inclusive cultures and much more um, accepting of diversity, uh, but that's going to be um, a big challenge um, over over the next decade. Um, the, the spectrum of augmentation, this is one we could spend a whole session on, Wanda, <laughs> and yes. um, you know, talk about how... Um, how people will be augmented. And let me just start with myself and then each of us can apply it to ourselves. I, you know, I'm, I write books and I um, used to be on the road all the time and used to be on stage a lot of the time. So now my metaphor is inviting people into my study working virtually. I've got the comfy chair over there. I've got the books on the shelf. I've got the VR goggles on my wall so I can shift into that if they want. Everything here I've got um, microphones, cameras, sound, uh, sound insulators, screens. I can simulate experiences here. I've got a green screen in the back. Um, I've got video resources to create experiences. And my goal is to be better than if I was on stage. Not, mm. not as good, but better uh, than if I was on stage. And everything has a story. You know, the Mickey Mouse is when I was working with Walt Disney World, um, prototyping the first sensors that sensed where you are in the park. And there's a sensor in Mickey's nose. And the Big Bird is when I gave a talk on Sesame Street and Big Bird was there, you know. So there's there's a story about everything. And I think all of us have to do that. And if I'm going to be a big time writer writing books 10 years from now, I'm going to have to be augmented. So in this chapter on the spectrum of augmentation, we actually use GPT-3 to write it. Mm -hmm. And I'll now announce to your audience that soon, within days, we're going to have an office shock chatbot that'll be up and shared publicly. And we'll give we'll send you the link so your listeners it, yeah. get it. Um, and it's basically going to be an interactive version of the office shock book. It's it knows everything that our book knows now. So I'd be glad to come back on your show, and if you want, you could interview the chatbot. And and I'd provide the color comments <laughs> after the chatbot. And it's a prototype. You know, it's a prototype. But 10 years from now, um, all authors will have that kind of interactive experience um, if we're going to be writing big-time books. So we'll still have books on our shelves. I believe that because physical books do things that e-books and audio books don't or augmented reality books. But we're going to have a much broader mix of of those things. I think you're right. So, so just I'm sorry. Just I'll finish the six and seven here. So uh, it's just such a big question and powerful question you ask. Um, as far as time and place, it's going to be much more fluid. These shape shifting organizations and the big leadership skill is choosing which medium is good for what. And you're going to have to be great in all of them. Where many of today's leaders are great in person, but they're not so good when they're virtual. And then finally, how do you hold it all together? What we call agility, the spectrum of agility. We're going to have to be really resilient in how we respond 
to the VUCA world. So that's a quick tour of the of the disruptions. But basically, in the book, they're embedded in those seven spectrums of choice. It's interesting. You write a book about office shock, and I think you could just as easily call that leadership shock. Sure. Because it is not just where yeah. you are describing the trends in the office space Definitely. and in officing, but Definitely. in what it means for the implications of the people that we're leading, the ways that we're leading, the behaviors that we have as leaders, what technologies we embrace and don't embrace, when, right. how, where, you know, all of that to me. It's I, uh, I agree. And, it, and it's kind of interesting given my history after I had that um, experience at the Army War College, I started writing what became a trilogy of books because I became intrigued by what would be the skills necessary to thrive in the VUCA world. So I wrote a book called Leaders Make the Future. And then I realized uh, that book went through two editions and was very successful, but I realized skills weren't enough. So I built, wrote a second book called The New Leadership Literacies, which are more about literacies and practices of which Futureback was one. And then I wrote a third book called Full Spectrum Thinking, which was about mindset. And right. you're right, you're very insightful. The The next book was Office Shock. And, and there it's, how do you take that? And it, it is leadership shock. And that's where I felt like I needed some co-authors. So I brought in an architect, um, PhD from MIT, and I also brought in an information scientist, um, Christine Bullen, uh, to look at digital media. But you're you're exactly right, Wanda. That's that's that kind of pulls it all together. Perfect, Bob. We are out of time, and I'm going to have you come back to talk about your experience on Chatbot and some of the augmentation because <laughs> I think we've got to get ahead of this game rather than just pretending to reject it. So, my guest today, fabulous conversation, Bob Johansson, sociologist, focused on top leadership in shape shifting organizations. <laughs> the book is called Office Shock. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you have, please like us on your favorite podcast server and join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.